0: Good morning. At my church, whenever I say good morning, there's dead silence afterwards. (laughs) So this is a very pleasant surprise. Um, The text today comes from James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Uh, It's on page 1011 in your pew Bible. Let me read the word of God for us. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needy for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is then. This is the word of the Lord. Let's come to God in prayer. Almighty God, we love you. We love you imperfectly, but we love you because you have first loved us in Jesus Christ and in sending your spirit to us. We thank you for your grace beyond measure. And God, we also give you the glory for the amazing work that you are doing at MPC and through MPC. And our great confidence in this life is not even our own strength, our own endurance, our own wisdom, but it is you. We believe that you are the one who brings to completion every good work that you begin. And so we pray for this church. May you bring to completion every good work that you have called this church to. And to that end, may we consider the challenge, the exhortation that is given to us today in Scripture? What does it mean to live a life uh, characterized by mercy instead of partiality? What does it mean to love the poor, to care for the marginalized? And so we pray for your grace that we may receive not only illumination, but also much conviction. May we walk away today... Uh, deeply blessed, but also deeply challenged because of the gospel. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I wanted to begin by first saying thank you on behalf of our church for the uh, kindness and the warmth that you have extended to to us. It's been something that we would have never conceived of uh, when we had first planted. Uh, During my installation service, many of the members came, and they were deeply moved as I was. Uh, during my installation service, we had Butch pray for me, and uh, it, it was really a moving prayer. Uh, the elders surrounded me, and uh, in part, I, you know, I actually began to weep because um, some of the elders are very uh, powerful men, and they were, they were just they were rubbing my shoulders, and uh, I, and the more blessed they were, they were just and, and, but Butch's Prayer just uh, really moved our members, and uh, I'll share something with you. Many of our members, actually, uh, they come from a non-Reformed, uh, non-Presbyterian background, but they did share that they better understand the Presbyterian Church and the impact uh, having godly elders, godly men, um, has on a church, and be, being the self-absorbed person I am, instead of saying Hallelujah, I said, um, "Every week you don't feel like that in my presence." <laughs> and, and so, again, they reiterated the need for elders, and so, um, so. But uh, we're so thankful, and uh, we are excited to be here with you. Um, I did share this with the first uh, during the first service, uh, even as uh, Max shared. And just to provide for you some cultural insight, when when Asians when we say we're excited, it just does not look like it at all. But we we are uh, we are so excited, and so this is my showing you we are like 110% excited about this partnership. So please please believe me, like there's tremendous. All right. Anyway, hallelujah. Let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, let's talk about today's passage. And so the title is somewhat of a misnomer. My fault completely. Um, I think it may be better to entitle uh, the message Partiality and Mercy, as two sides of the same coin. And this, this challenge not to be partial, not to be discriminating, um, not to show favoritism, I think is especially relevant in this greater D.C. area. Uh, let me begin by sharing with you, I think... This narrative was by R.C. Spurl. I I should have checked the uh, the source, but I think he shared this. He was visiting a church member at at a hospital, and while he was waiting outside uh, to see his church member, he noticed a nurse was walking by, and as she was walking by, a physician was walking by, a doctor. And as soon as she saw him, she became all bubbly, full of energy, and said, huh? Hello, Dr. Grant, and began to chat up a storm, smile, laugh, and so forth. And then when the doctor walked away, she, she kept walking, and then there was a janitor who looked at her, smiled, and said hello, and she didn't even lift his face, uh, her face. And R.C. Sproul, he was saying, You see, that's indicative of what our culture is like how we show preferential treatment, how we show partiality. And this is something that you know, all of us should be familiar with. Even you know, those of you who are single, uh, you've seen this, you've probably experienced this in some shape or form. If you have a, a room full of single people, and um, if an Italian stallion, tall, uh, <laughs> handsome, wavy hair, um, you know, man walks in, and then, if uh, you know a, a wee little man with um, glasses that are too big walks in, you know who, who gets the recognition, who gets the treatment, who who gets the conversations, and even something as simple as when I was um, even five, ten years ago, when I first began ministry, I looked like super young, and I sort of look young now, but I, I looked super, super young. And when I would go to church, the first three months, uh, actually, no one acknowledged me. Uh, no one said hello. And then what happened was one Sunday they had me preach, and then everyone was like, oh my goodness, he's a pastor, he's a preacher. (laughs) And all of a sudden, an endless number of requests, let's have dinner, let's have lunch. Um, During the uh, church luncheons, you go first, Uh, triple portions for this little man. Uh, It it was just, (laughs) it it was just, it was just yeah, and I understand some of it may have been because they were trying to honor the pastor, but you, you see, this question of partiality, showing favoritism—I I would suggest—I I think it's so relevant. And just think about it for yourself. You know, at your work, do you treat people differently—the yeah, way you speak to your boss, the way you speak to your assistant, the way you speak to your peers—or um, you know, even if you're serving as an elder, the way you speak to church members versus the way you speak to your wife. Um, If you're single, uh, if the way you speak to people who are attractive, cool, uh, funny, versus the people who are different. And so this challenge not to show partiality, especially to the marginalized, the poor, I hope comes as a special challenge to all of us this morning. And so three points we want to consider I'm going to borrow uh, John Frames. I love his tri perspectival approach. Uh, that's a fancy word you can use like at a cocktail party, tri perspectivalism. But basically, the normative perspective asks how does God view the poor? How does God view those who are weaker, who are marginalized? That's number one. And num- number two, the uh, situational perspective. How does God's perspective inform the way we ought to engage the poor? Those who are different, those who, to be honest, uh, don't have fancy resumes and um, titles and letters after their name. How do we engage those people who are, to be honest, at the outskirts of society? And number three, maybe most importantly, wherein do we find the power to be what we are not naturally? Wherein do we find the power to be like Christ? And so those three considerations. So number one, How does God view the poor? If you look at verse 5, it's uh, worth really meditating on. Verse 5 reads, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The principle we have here is that God is in the regular practice of choosing the things that are not to shame the things that are, to choose the things that are weak, to choose the things that have no hope, to really shame those who are strong and powerful. And we see this pattern throughout scripture. Uh, even in the Old Testament. We're not just talking about the New Testament. Remember in the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, this is a great story. Jacob and Esau are essentially twin brothers. And Esau is a man's man. He, he's like David. You know, Dave, he, uh, Pastor David, he can, he can make things. He was a hunter. Um, you know, he, he was hairy and he was tall and strong. Um <laughs> I I don't know if David, no, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But Jacob was the opposite. He was like, um, to be honest, he was like a mama's boy. Stayed home, you know, cooked. uh, Wasn't very hairy. Again, not a sign of masculinity, but there is this strong contrast, at least within that society, that's whom they would have considered as the heir, as the man, as the one who's powerful. And what does God do? He chooses to bless Jacob. The one. And by the way, Jacob's story unfolds, and there's nothing wonderful about Jacob. Jacob is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a fraud. He's superficial. Um, in every sense, God chooses the things that are not to shame the things that are. Or when God redeems Israel, Israel, um, like, you had, I mean, um, one of the reasons why I love reading uh, the Old Testament is your perception of God just has got to change. God is so blunt to the point of being hilarious, where basically he says to Israel, he says, I chose you um, despite yourself. You had absolutely nothing to offer. You are stiff-necked people. You're rebellious. Um, you know, you, that's why I chose you. you. See, that's the pattern that we find regularly in Scripture. And then when we move on to the New Testament, what do we notice about Jesus? Was Jesus ever impressed by a religious leader, a political figure? No, he was always talking with the prostitutes, the cheats, the drunkards, the lepers. He's basically engaging those who are on the outskirts of society. So that, that's the first principle we get that I think it, it is so worth thinking about. The God that we come to serve, the God that we love, the God we claim to give our allegiance to, he is in the regular practice of loving the poor, of inviting those who are disenfranchised. And this isn't to say that in order to be loved by God, you must be poor. That That's not, you know, the point here. But the point here is to see how God radically changes the categories that you and I are accustomed to. I mean, how, do, you, do you see how that would work out? I mean, even if I can just go back to that singles example, basically God would engage that single who perhaps is not all that attractive, who's not that funny, who, um, when He or she comes up to you, stands too close, you know, too close. And, you know, you realize doesn't have social, you know, cues and so forth. But, see, that's the kind of person that God is. He continues to engage the poor, the disenfranchised. So that's, number one, the normative perspective. Number two, the situational perspective. Now, when we take this on a superficial level, we may think, okay, well, I should not be partial then. I should not be discriminating. I should talk to everybody And I think what's very helpful to keep in mind is generally in the Bible, when there is a negative uh, commandment, there's a positive complement to it. And so, for instance, when you look at the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, when it says, do not murder, okay, most of us, hopefully all of us in this room will say, okay, check. No, cool, we're good. But then, you know, when Jesus comes and he helps us to understand, it's not merely do not commit murder, but also love your neighbor. Pursue your neighbor's good with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. You see, there's this pattern of not just doing the negative, but also the positive. Similarly, when the Bible says, don't have sex outside of marriage, it doesn't have a negative view of sex simply. It doesn't simply mean sex is bad, but it's saying don't have sex outside of marriage, but within marriage, celebrate intimacy with your spouse. You see, there's always that positive complement. Or when you look at Titus 1, and it talks about elders, you know, there's this pattern that's very noticeable. First, uh, Paul says, an elder must not be like this, must not be like this, and must not be like this. But then it goes on to say, but an elder must be like this, must be like this, must be like this. And so it's not enough simply not to be a bad person in order to be an elder. You also must be marked by good works. The reason why I'm underscoring this is because in a passage like this, we can sort of, observe it superficially by saying, okay, have to say hi to everybody. Um, Hi, 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 not being partial, check. But you see, the text goes on to say the other side of the coin is mercy. See, extending kindness and generosity to those who are radically different from you. Look with me for a moment at the passage, uh, verse 13, and then we'll read on to verse 17. Judgment without mercy to one who has shown their mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then James teases out what this means. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save them? And then see, notice how James defines saving works. In verse 15, he says very explicitly, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, the letter of James is talking about saving faith, true faith. Nowhere in this letter is it saying, if we do A, B, and C, then God will accept us. But James is underscoring this point. While we are never saved by good works, saving faith always produces good works. And more explicitly, it's saying the good work that uh, James has in view is generosity, goodness to those who are radically different, especially to the poor. I love the way uh, this one preacher pitted. He was commenting on Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 4 is a very instructive text. It basically says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work so that he has something to give. Did you catch that last part? And so this preacher, he said, you see, if you are a Christian, if you claim to follow Christ, and yet you're not radically generous, it's not a matter of being stingy, it's a matter of robbery because you're withholding the things that ultimately belong to God. See, if in fact you believe that God is generous to the poor, God cares for the poor, God loves the poor, it's not enough for you simply to be like, I'll recognize the poor, I'll recognize those who are different, I'll greet those who are some sort of on the skirts, but it's going out of your way to be generous to those who are radically different from you. That, that, that is a lot more difficult when you really begin to understand this complimentary exhortation. Don't be partial, but be full of mercy. Why is this the case? So um, some of you have taken the Metro, I'm sure, and uh, I've taken the Metro many times, and I don't know what it is. It's just something about God's humor in my life. Something always happens to me on the Metro that is um, worthwhile. Like I've learned to say never to give my seat to a woman um, in case that, like, there was one time I said, oh, you should sit down on my seat. And she goes, oh, that's so kind of you. Why? And I was saying, um, oh, you know, because you're... Pre-. And then she wasn't. And I was like, no, it's because it's I'm getting off the next stop. And <laughs> so the metro has been a place where I have learned just to be silent. And um, I'm on the metro, and I just observe. And there's this one time I... I saw something, I think a lot of us can relate to this. So there's this, uh, a comp- obviously a very accomplished businesswoman. She was on her BlackBerry, seated, and she looked very happy. Probably closed the deal, who knows. And then, in the next metro stop here, comes in a homeless man, and clearly, this homeless man, he, he reeked. Uh, the The aura of the just train changed radically, and his clothes was dirty, you could tell it was filthy. And I looked at her, not critically, because I'm not sure what I would have done, but she became visibly upset. And then as soon as she was able to, she got up and distanced herself from the poor man, the homeless man. You see, James, what he's saying here is some of you might think, well, I think I would have done the same. Some of you are thinking, are thinking that. Some of you might be thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that. I would have just stayed there. I would have been respectable you know, to myself and to him. James is saying even that is not enough. It's to sit next to him and then to say, hey, are you hungry? You want, you want something to eat? Do, do you need clothes? Do you, do you need time? Because you see regularly when the New Testament talks about mercy, it doesn't simply say acknowledging a person, but it's going out of your way to bless the person. All, all of you know that story of the, uh, pro- uh, not, not the prodigal, sorry, <laughs> the Good Samaritan, where basically a Samaritan helps a a person who has been robbed and beaten. And the narrative is is so indicative of what we're talking about um, in terms of the true nature of mercy. He lets the the beaten man ride on his donkey and then he brings him to basically a motel and he offers to pay for all his medicine and he goes on to say to the innkeeper, if he needs anything else, um, provide all the care. Provide all the medication for him that he needs and I will take care of it. See, whenever the Bible talks about mercy, it's not simply, okay, no one's talking to this person. I guess I'll go say hi. You know, it's actually, hey, do you have plans after lunch? You know, what are you doing? See, mercy is more than just not being um, impartial, more than being uh, partial, It's showing kindness, showing generosity. It's hurting so that through our generosity, those who are radically different can be blessed. And, you know, before we move on to the next point, I just want to challenge you to really think about this. This is something I've been thinking about a lot because it's easy for all of us to think, well, yeah, I'm generous. Yeah, I give up my time and my resources. let me ask this very difficult question. Do you show that kind of generosity in terms of your resources, your time, your money to people who are very actually different from you? It would be easy for me to go out with James and David for us to have a nice meal together. It would be easy to be generous towards them. It would be easy to do that towards many of my church members. But if you ask me, when in the last three months, when in the last six months, when in the last year have you gone out of your way to be radically generous to the disenfranchised, to those who have no one to take them out for a meal, to those who have no one to speak to, how would you answer that? You see, that's what James is getting at. It's that radical. It's, it's that profound. It's basically um, you know, something that if we really understand the commandment, many of us would say not only, wow, I don't do that, we would also say, I don't think I want to do that, and I don't think I can do that, which leads us to uh, the last point. How do we do it? And I, I think it's really helpful here to be honest. You see, in order for us to really change in this sense, our life story has to change radically. This is why, for most of us, if not all of us, we were trained basically to believe that the, the number of letters that we have after our name, the titles that we have, the accomplishments we can place on our resume, those are the things that give us access to people. It's basically what we've done or who we are that will either open doors or close doors Uh, You know, one example of this was, I think it was Fox 5 that did this experiment. It was several years ago, but it was very memorable. Basically, they they got a model, basically a Victoria's Secret model. Absolutely stunning, absolutely gorgeous. And the commentator, using her phrase, she she said that they decided to put a fat suit on her, or a suit that basically made her look radically different. And then they placed her next to a broken-down car, and they said for an entire afternoon, she would ask people for help, and maybe a half person dropped by, you know, just to make sure everything was okay. But no one would give her any time, uh, any resources. And then the very next day, they did a similar experiment where they took off the suit, and she was voila, you know, beautiful, engaging. And not only did was there an endless number of men who offered to help, they also offered to buy her lunch and drive her wherever she needed to go, and so forth. And you see. The reason why that sort of story resonates with us because we know deep inside, see, that's the way culture works. That's the way culture is and we've all experienced it. Those of us who feel like you've been ostracized, it's because you feel a lack of accomplishment. Those of you who feel included know in large part it's because of your accomplishments. And the reason why I'm underscoring this is because the way we have quote unquote been loved, the patterns that we have adopted, those are the same patterns that we will use when we engage people. And therefore, if I say to this person, oh, you're, you're the president's daughter. Oh, I have all the time in the world for you. Know, for you. You, you, you never graduated high school. What? Who are, mm, sorry. You, see, for us to break that pattern, we need a different story. We need a different narrative. We need a different God. And this is what's so distinct about the gospel. The gospel tells us about this eternal son, Jesus Christ, And the gospel underscores that Jesus, in very nature, was the same as God. Same as God, but did not consider that equality something to be grasped. And you see in this text where it says, you see the way we naturally act is we say to the rich, come here, sit next to me. And we say to the poor, stand at a distance. When you keep that in the back of your mind, and then you contrast it with what Jesus has done, it's extraordinary. Not only does Jesus say, come, sit next to me, he says, I will bring myself down so you can sit in the seat of honor. I will, in fact, lose all my credentials. I will lose all my accolades. I will lose all my glory so that through my poverty, you might become rich. See how the gospel narrative, when you get it, it has to change you. That's why chapter 2, verse 1, it begins in an interesting way. It says this, if you look with me one more time. The ESV translation is very good. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, the Greek goes something like this. It says, as you hold on to this gospel message, you cannot at the same time hold on to this old way of living a life characterized by partiality. It, you know, it's, it's too nerdy, so we won't get into technicalities, but basically, it really is a great picture where James is saying, If you are holding on to the fact that Jesus, the eternal son of God, lost all things, became a servant, a human being, died a criminal's death, so that through his life, death, and resurrection, you might have hope. If you hold on to this, then you can no longer hold on to this old pattern of engaging people according to their credentials, titles, and backgrounds, and accomplishments, and so forth. See? Tremendous challenge. I wanted to close by uh, challenging, I guess, NPC in a very particular way. Uh, it would be different if we were in a different setting, but I believe that this sort of passage if a, if really appropriated and applied by you can have tremendous missional value. That is, you know, as important as it is to do institutional initiatives, I, I'm a, you know, big believer in that, you know, you're collecting car seats and so forth, as important as those things are, what you do also individually in, in this sense, can make a profound difference. This is why. The reality is this. You know, we mustn't be naive. Many of you who come, attend NPC, or, or maybe are simply visiting, many of you are accomplished. Many of you have many letters after your uh, name. Many of you are very high up in the uh, socioeconomic ladder. Many of you are executives, doctors, lawyers, uh, professors, you name it. Many of you are up there. My challenge to you is this. You, therefore, have a unique unique and extraordinary opportunity to progress the gospel in a radically distinct way. Let me illustrate it uh, in, in, in two ways. And so, um, recently I, I got to meet a superstar. Uh, I wasn't really bedazzled by it. it. That's just not my flavor. And even when my wife and I, we were in Hollywood, we uh, bumped into all these famous stars and uh, we were like, eh, not a big deal. But there is one person He's a celebrity in the Christian circles. He makes me nervous. And um, it's Tim Keller. It's like, he, he's, a, he's a big, um, he, he's been a very influential uh, picture in my life, uh, figure in my life. I told my wife, if we ever have a daughter, uh, we're going to name her Kelly. Uh, so, uh, you know, he so said, undoubtedly. And uh, there's this one time at the General Assembly, uh, Dr. Tim Keller was waiting for a taxi cab. And I saw him, and I said, Oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I must greet him, and I was like a teenage girl, like all nervous and rehearsing what I would say. And it was perfectly done. I said, "Dr. Tim Kelly, I just want you." In my head, and he—he's a tall man, by the way, and I am not. So, I—I I remember I had to reach over and tap on his shoulder, and he turned around, looked me—you know—looked straight down at me, and it was—it was like the voice of God. He. <laughs> He said, well, hello. And, <laughs> and I, I honestly felt like Gandalf and a hobbit. So uh, anyway. And oh, like I cannot tell you what happened. Oh, what happened next was just every person's like, I, I for- literally forgot how to speak English. I was like, <laughs> and I said, hi. <laughs> and he, he actually asked me, what's your name? And I, I didn't respond initially. I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> And so we, we began to talk to each other. And at the very end, he said, um, you know, brother, I'm so glad you introduced yourself. Be faithful in ministry. And again, I was like, he called me brother. <laughs> and so and as I walked away, I, I thought about that engagement because, you see, I think he missed his cab because of me. And uh, I, I make that last detail. I, I observed that last detail because one thing I noticed from that exchange was the way he treated me like a person. And the way he gave me, even if it was two, three minutes, he gave me his undivided attention, despite being you know, the great celebrity uh, pastor he is. And that, more than, definitely not the conversation, but that really left an impression on me of what it means to actually stop from all the busyness, stop from all the self-importance we give ourselves, and just acknowledge people and engage them and respect them. Not, not treating them partially, but treating them with mercy, kindness, goodness, and really conveying to them you're worth my time. You are worth my time. You're made in the image of God. You are someone that Jesus has come down to redeem. You are worth my time. You see, I guarantee you this, especially in this D.C. area where it's all about networking. It's all about knowing the right people. It's all about making a good impression. I can guarantee you, if you who are very accomplished, who come from an incredible background, if you mimic the pattern of Jesus' self-humiliation, if you mimic his pattern where essentially he lost all things so that we could gain all things, he, he, he surrendered his titles, his, his comforts, his glories, so that through his poverty and weakness, we might become rich and strong. If you follow that pattern, you will have tremendous missional gospel impact in this area. I, I can guarantee it. Um, I'll close with this story. It's about this woman. She was a cashier and um, a, a, a grocery uh, bagger for many years. And she, she goes on to say that for many years, she noticed this trend. She said about 20, 30 years ago, people were more friendly. They actually talked online. But then with the advent of smartphones and just cellular phones, everyone's always like, typing away, talking... And, she, you know, she was sharing about how she basically feels like a machine a lot of times because people will not acknowledge her like a person. They'll just say, no, no, put that in here and put that there, and oh, you're not doing this correctly, and wait, wait, I'll get the credit card. But she says, you know, she's a Christian. She said this is how she became a Christian. She said there was this one man. He would always go out of his way, actually, to make sure he would wait online uh, where I was. And he would always greet me by name. He would ask how my family was doing. And he would just talk to me like a person. even though, to be honest, uh, I could tell he was very wealthy. And then later on, she said she found out that he was actually a very accomplished individual, uh, you know, probably a millionaire and so forth. And she said, wow. And she was like, and yet he treats me like I'm somebody. He doesn't treat me like I'm poor. I'm not educated. I'm not worth his time. And so one day she finally asked him, so let me ask you, um, why are you so kind to me? You know, why do, you, why do you give me your time of day? Why, why do you engage me? You know, I'm sure I probably wouldn't fit in your socioeconomic, academic circles. Like, why? And he says, well, I'll tell you since you asked. I have a Savior who's done this for me. I have a Lord and Savior. He, he gave up all things for someone like me so that I would be blessed. I'm simply trying to imitate ever imperfectly what he has first done for me. You see, some people will come to the gospel through uh, argumentation, uh, you know, apologetics, and so forth. Some people will come through, to the gospel through, you might say, supernatural experiences, I suppose. But many will come to the gospel by the way we follow Christ. And so my challenge to you, especially this church, recognizing that many of you, you know, to be honest, you do come from, you might say, an elite background, or you are headed there, now, I want to call us as fellow believers to be radically different, not to, show partial, not to be partial, but to be rich in mercy, and in this way, to bring much honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray. God, we, we praise you. We thank you for the ways that your word has a unique ability to confront us exactly where we are and to challenge us, not even through guilt per se, but through the good news of Jesus Christ. We are in a culture, we're in a setting where uh, it is about being partial. It is about showing favoritism. And uh, many of us, if not all of us, are guilty of that when we think about it, the way we speak, the way we engage with one set of people versus another and another, But may we be deeply challenged by the fact that God has chosen the weak things of this world. He has chosen the poor so that he might receive all glory. May that radically challenge us uh, to be impartial and to be merciful. And may we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the one who was God but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but literally became nothing. He became servant, And he lost all good things so that by his losing, we might gain, we might be honored, and we might have the seed of glory. I pray especially for this church as this church is filled with many people who have, therefore, great opportunities to follow Christ. May we adopt this mindset. May we be rich in mercy. And in this way, may the gospel go forth. And may we see lives change through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.